Well, this week's guest on the Honky Tonk Time Machine is the Grammy-nominated Lacey J. Dalton, one of the great women in country music, and we are honored to have her on the show. Lacey, thanks for coming on. Hey, Glenn. It's great to be with you, and I uh, sure appreciate the uh, airtime. When we started the show, we are looking at artists that we could have on, and uh, we circled your name, and we were finally able to... <laughs> To, to work it out. How have you been lately? What you been up to? Oh, I've been great. We just got back from Montana. We were out at uh, the Montana uh, Music Ranch, which is in the Paradise Valley, where they filmed A uh, River Runs Through It. Uh-huh. I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, and I look forward to going there almost every year. And this time we were out there with, uh, with Rory Feek and uh, an Indian uh, artist named Ryan Kemplin, Keplin, rather, who's a Métis Indian, who is uh, got some very, very wonderful music. Uh, he tours more in Canada than he does down here. Rory, of course, is uh, of the RFD TV fame. And from and, Joey, uh, Joey and Rory fame as well. Joey and Rory fame, and what a great songwriter he is. He had me in tears twice. Wow. He had a song about his father, and he had another song that said, Satan knew my grandma very well. <laughs> but at the but at the and I thought it would be about a hell raising grandma when he started, but actually it was about his grandmother fighting uh, the dark forces. And uh, the last line of the song is, "Well, Satan knew my grandma very well, but Jesus knew her best." Mm. It's pretty cool. I mean, but it's not real preachy or, or religious. It's just good. He just writes very very well. I agree one hundred percent. And it's funny you mentioned Montana. I'm actually headed that way uh, early next month. I got a vacation planned out there, probably around the oh. same around the same area you're talking about. I think. Oh, you're gonna love it! It's so beautiful. It was pretty smoky out there. The fires in the west, for some reason, the smoke came out and kind of settled in that valley. So it was pretty smoky while we were there, and it was that way the last year that we went there, which was the year before COVID, um, because of the fires in the west. And uh, it it it's disappointing because. When the air isn't hazy, the sky just goes on forever, and the the creeks and the Yellowstone River is just so clear you can see every stone on the bottom. I understand you you like these wild places. I do, yeah. I actually this will be my I think fourth time out there, so yeah, I'm a, wow. I'm a big fan. Are you going to go to the park? Is that where you're headed? Yes, yes. I'm actually we're doing a a backpacking trip into the park. This time, oh, so. wow. Where, and where will you start? We're starting in Mini Glacier uh, at Glacier National Park. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, we're doing a 52-mile loop over that's five days. A, that's a, that's a quite a little hike. <laughs> it will be. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope you're, I hope you're uh, able to uh, get yourself in shape in this heat. I swear, I, you know, I wanted to be uh, jogging again this summer. But it is really hot, and I'd have to get up in the middle of the night for it to be uh, cool enough at four or five. And at five and six, it's already sort of hot at six in the morning here. Uh huh. Yeah, and I understand. Unseasonably hot out there right now. It is. I live up in the mountains. Um, Reno sits in a big valley called the Truckee Meadows, and on the to the west are the beautiful Sierra Mountains. And on the east is a smaller uh, range of mountains called the Virginia Range. And I live up in that mountain range near the old town of Virginia City, Nevada, which is just exactly like it was 150 years ago. I mean, they, they haven't they really, it has not been uh, polished up. Um, it's just, well, it's not as funky as it was when they were mining there. I guess it was almost impossible to be there when we were mining. It was so awful. 
but um, it, it hasn't been uh, gentrified, which is something I like. It's kind of just the way it was. And one of the signs when you go into Virginia City says the way it was. That sounds awesome. I need to get out that way, too. It's it's great. The best time to come would be after Labor Day, you know, after the tourism season is is over. But it's it's very beautiful up here. I live in the high desert. There are a lot of pinion pines and rocky outcroppings and uh, sagebrush forever. And we the reason I'm here is because of the wild horses. The largest, uh, arguably, contiguous herd of wild horses on private land is up here in the Virginia Range. Yeah, I've heard that's something that you're very passionate about. I, I am, and it's the reason I moved here. But the minute I moved here, I realized that uh, these horses were in terrible trouble. They were getting on the roads where they were a danger to themselves and the motorists. They didn't have a place. We had uh, kind of driven them, uh, cut off their migratory routes, and kind of taken up a lot of their uh, habitat. So they had no place to go, and a lot of them actually, I live in a a development that has one acre, 10 acre, and 40 acre ranches. And the horses, there'd be 30 or 40 of them that would come through my yard every day when I first moved here. What is it that uh, that you do specifically with the wild horses? It's a long story. Uh, I started in about 2003. We got a uh, our 501c3 tax exempt organization uh, certificate, and we started a foundation called the Let Them Run Foundation. And uh, very close to here is the largest industrial park in the world. It's called Tahoe Reno Industrial. And it is down along the Highway 80 corridor that goes out to Winnemucca and points east. And um, the Highway 50 corridor that goes up to Lake Tahoe. And between that area, there are about, and have been for many, many years, about 2,500 wild horses that are not managed by the Bureau of Land Management, which has jurisdiction over most of the horses, the wild horses in the United States, that are not on Indian reservations. And there are thousands upon thousands of them on Indian reservations, and that's a uh, not a good situation. And I won't go into that, but it's uh, it's complicated, and the horses don't do well normally on those on the, those places. But these horses. Um, uh, when I got here, I realized the horses were in trouble and they needed a place to be. And um, the horse advocates here had so alienated the industrial park that you couldn't even get a meeting with them. Fortunately, I had the, the, the broker of that big park and part owner of the park was a guy named Lance Gilman, and he'd been an A&R guy in L.A. when my career was really big. So he knew who I was, and he would he would see me. His mother was uh, the queen of the Pendleton Rodeo when he was a kid, and he loves horses and he loves ranching, and he happened to have a relationship with the most famous madam in the world who ran the Mustang Ranch, which was on the property of the Tahoe Reno Industrial um, uh, Park. And they became um, very, very close, and she, Susan Austin, was crazy about the horses, and Lance liked the horses. And between all three of us, we were finally able to convince Roger Norman, who owned the park, that these wild horses, I'll never forget, I read something, I believe it was in the Atlantic Monthly, and there were three reasons why international companies moved their warehouses, you know, their big operations, to uh, other locations. One of them was proximity to a brothel, 
and the other was proximity to wildlife. So I talked to them, I showed them the article, and I talked to them about it, and sure enough, the first company that actually came in was Walmart, and when Walmart came in there, the first thing they did was paint giant pictures of wild horses all over their water tanks. So the argument was sealed, and they began to realize that a lot of international companies were going to be attracted to the brothel and the wild horses. And so after many, many years, the horses now are welcome on that industrial park. People like Bitcoin and Tesla, uh, you know, they are the people that really are loving the horses, and they're actually putting money into um, a birth control uh, situation so that the horses don't overpopulate the range. We're in a terrible drought here, probably as well as you are. Uh, I don't know how it is in Missouri, but here and out in Montana where we were, there's a pretty severe drought. And that is makes it very, very hard on the wild animals and especially on wild horses. So you've got to do something to manage the numbers. And, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, I probably wouldn't think it, that birth control of wild horses was the greatest idea. But to be perfectly truthful now, if we want to have any left for our children and our grandchildren, we have to do something to reduce the numbers because we're reducing their habitat at a rate that is uh, practically unbelievable. It's a wonderful cause and, and certainly enough to make you pack up and, and move out west. I understand that you're uh, originally from Pennsylvania. Is that right? That's true. That's true. But I always had, I always knew that I would come out to the West, and I didn't want to. But I knew in my soul that I would come to the West. And I thought, I knew I'd go to California. I didn't know why, I didn't know how. But I thought California, all I'd ever seen of California were Elvis and Annette Funicello movies, and I thought it was like one long Orange Julius beach thing <laughs> from one end to the other. I had no earthly idea how exquisitely beautiful uh, Northern California and many places in Southern California, but more more particularly Northern California, is an exquisitely beautiful place. And I ran off with a guitar player from the uh, who was a rock and roll guitar player at the Bloomsburg County Fair, where I was selling jewelry for Big Joe Ryan. He was selling psychedelic posters, and we fell in something love, I guess. And we ran off to California, and we were in a blizzard. We were in this Carmen Ghia car. Little Carmen Gee and I was sitting sideways on the seat to hold the door shut, which we had tied shut, but it wouldn't stay shut in the blizzard. And I had $20 and a suitcase full of books and a guitar. And he, of course, had his guitars. And we headed out to California. We were going to go to California and be flower children. Well, the blizzard lasted. It was the most terrible blizzard. I was turning 21 on the trip. And it lasted all the way from his cousin's house in Tonkanic, Pennsylvania, until we reached the border at State Line uh, up near Lake Tahoe. At the moment that we hit State Line, the sun burst out of the clouds. And there was Lake Tahoe and all these beautiful pine trees with long, beautiful uh, icicles glittering in the sun. And And they were dripping because the sun had come out, and it was though Spirit just said to me, now you see, this is why you came to California. And everything good happened to me in California. It just was, a, I met my 
my husband there, and and um, I, I had a band there, and uh, it, it just was. Northern California was, first of all, unspeakably beautiful up there at Lake Tahoe, and all around. I mean, Northern California. You know, there's the Big Sur, when you always see these pictures of people driving cars along the Big Sur Highway with the cliffs and the ocean, and it's just a luck. Northern California, I wish I could have seen it when the Spanish first came there, because it's still so utterly beautiful, and it was nothing like I expected. I really, and I was, and then when I realized that, I went, oh, okay, now I'm in the right place. Now I'm where I'm supposed to be. When you went there, did you have dreams of becoming a musician, or is that something that, that came later? I had already been a folk singer for um, oh, several years, and I think I started when I was about 17, and I had played music and was out playing when I was, you know, 19 and 20 and 21. I wasn't very good, but I was out playing folk music and writing my own songs. And uh, when I went to California uh, with this rock and roll guitar player, we uh, ended up in a hippie commune and had formed a psychedelic rock and roll band. And we were part of that whole flower child movement that was in Northern California. We weren't in the thick of it because we weren't quite in San Francisco. We were down the coast about 75 miles in a beautiful place called Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. And I settled there in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and I was there for some of the very, very best years of my life, about 20 years. It's interesting. You travel with a, a rock and roll guitar player and, and you know, join the, the flower power movement. But you grew up around a country family. It's just that you didn't necessarily like country music early on. Well, it's not that I didn't like it. I was I was just completely used to it. And when I grew up and, and you know, began to decide what kind of music I really loved, I strayed from the flock because I had fallen in love with um, the music of Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and later Janis Joplin and the new writers of the Purple Sage and, and uh, you know, the Jefferson Airplane and all of those those bands. And so I played a lot of different kinds of music, and, and but I always wrote country songs. I always... You know, it was so natural to me. It was all I ever heard. The only thing I ever heard growing up were, was uh, Perry Como, because we were in Pennsylvania, and that was his state, <laughs> and 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 really hard country music. My my dad's favorite song was, Give me 40 acres and I'll turn this rig around. <laughs> it's easy. And, you know, he was horrified. He said, Why do you like these minor chords, these mournful chords that you play? What is it about that? I said, I don't know, Dad. I just love the way they sound and to be truthful Glenn I think I was born to sing in a minor key I love to sing um, I had a huge hit on a song that I wrote called Everybody Makes Mistakes mm-hmm. and I found out recently from a disc jockey in Pennsylvania that it was the most played song I ever had and I had no idea I had absolutely no idea that that was the most played song I'd ever had you've had so many of them and I kind of want to touch on some of them you brought that one up so so let's start with it Billboard had it as a number five hit then. This would have been 1980, Something. 81. Yeah. Two, eight, I don't yeah. know that, that way, 81, 82. And it, yeah, it, it, we were really brilliant. We thought, we're going to put this out, and we're going to make it a two-sided single. We're going to have a song called Wild Turkey on one side, and we'll play that up to Thanksgiving. And then after Thanksgiving, we'll play Everybody Makes Mistakes. 
Well, radio had no, they did not cooperate. <laughs> Everybody played, they, both songs were, hit, were hits, which was wonderful for us. But I think they both probably would have been bigger hits had they been released as a single, not a double-sided single. <laughs> so we we had that going on. Um, but it was, uh, it was a good time for me. And the song, Everybody Makes Mistakes, I almost didn't show it to my producer because it was not really what you heard in country music back then yeah you just didn't hear that type of song and i was signed he and on the strength of songs like that and crazy blue eyes which i wrote with my longest friend we're still best friends and we've been best friends since we were seven years old and we wrote my first hit song crazy blue eyes together and it was of an outlaw kind of it was not the, the kind of thing you heard mostly in country music you heard uh, stand by your man, or I'm dying because my man left me. Mm-hmm. Crazy Blue Eyes wasn't like that. It was it was the song about uh, my generation were the first generation of women who were truly liberated, and that song talked about that in a kind of uh, odd way. You know, I never could stand the touch of a man who'd brand me to keep me around. You know, why do I fall for these crazy blue eyes? Mavericks who won't settle down. Well, when I was signed, I was signed as an outlaw. And that was a very good, that turned out to be a really great thing for me, Glenn, because um, what brought me back to country music, as I told you earlier when we were talking, were the outlaws. You know, Waylon and Willie and the boys. That made me love country music again, those guys. And because of the, that I was signed as an outlaw, uh, there were very few of us girls that got to open for the likes of Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and, and uh, Hank Jr. And I, I opened for those guys for long periods of time, uh, years, uh, uh, maybe a year with Willie, a year and a half with Merle, a year and a half with Hank Jr., and lots of times with um, uh, Charlie Daniels and folks like that, and even David Allen Coe. I played his wife in the movie Take This Job and Shove It. Yeah. And and then um, my very favorite tour of all was a tour with uh, my favorite outlaws over in Europe. There was Bobby Bear, the great Bobby Bear, whom I loved, Mm -hmm. and Hoyt Axton, you know, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, Johnny Cash, the man in black, and, of course, the great Chris Christopherson, who is and was and always will be, I think, my very favorite songwriter of all time. You mentioned some names right there, Lacey. <laughs> you dropped <laughs> well, some names. <laughs> it was so great to be able to, uh, you know, I never had that thing where I wanted to, you know, I, I, I knew I had to get a record deal, but I never had that thing, oh, I want to be a star and wear all those clothes and go all to those. Uh, I, it was never, that was never my motivation for music. My motivation for music was, it's a communication. When I get on stage, I like to have a, I like to communicate with the audience. And the whole reason that I like to do music and want to do music, and I've always done it, is to give people, you know, this is world is not an easy place to be. I don't know what to compare it to, but it, it, it's a beautiful and a terrible place. Beautiful things happen and terrible, unspeakable things happen to people. And people, there are times when people really need to hear a song that will give them hope. That's why I love Chris Christopherson's songs, things like Why Me, Lord, and a song that I recorded called The Heart that Chris wrote, 
which was is one of the finest songs I get to sing. These songs, and I had a whole CD called Survivor, and I can't tell you the number of people who've come to me and said, thank you for doing that music. It got me through cancer surgery. It got me through the loss of my husband, or it got me through losing a child. I mean, I cannot tell you how many things, and there have been some miraculous things because of that as well, but um, I got to do exactly, I got to do a career exactly the way I would have wanted to do it. In other words, I got to travel with the people that I admired most in the music business. And and I, I you know I didn't just travel with outlaws. I also traveled with with you know for instance the Oak Ridge Boys and folks like that. And John Anderson, who actually is sort of an outlaw, mm-hmm. but. Um, those the people I got to tour with, like Bobby Bear, they were the people I really loved. So it was it was really really perfect. I'm happy now, even though I don't have the promotion uh, of a big record company behind me, because of the great job that CBS did for me in the beginning. I can still work, and I've been able to do my music my whole life. But now I have complete and utter freedom. And I, I would love for you to hear a project that I have, since you love wild places. Um, about 13 years ago, maybe 14 now, I recorded a, a CD with my own guys in my own studio, my own producer. I co-produced it. My husband was, my ex-husband was an engineer. And we recorded a thing called The Last Wild Place. And it's called The Last Wild Place Anthology, and I think it's the best work I've ever done. And that song, just in 2019, that 13-year-old CD at that time, won very prestigious awards from Strictly Country Magazine and the Spirit Awards. It was called the CD of the Year, and one of the songs um, called Boundless Skies was called the the, uh, Song of the Year. It won the Pete Huttlinger Award for Musical Excellence. It was 13 years old. And a lot of people never even knew that I did it because I didn't have the uh, ability to get it out into the world, to promote it the way it should have been promoted. But it's sold and sold and sold and sold. And um, I'm very, it's one of the few CDs that I've made that I can actually sit and listen to and enjoy because I'm singing in the proper register. I'm singing in, my voice is kind of low. And always in Nashville, they had me singing way up here. I, I got a heart for you. And I can hardly listen to that stuff. Some of it, it just sounds, uh, you know, when I listen even to 16th Avenue, I sound nasal. God bless the boys who made them. I don't, know, I don't know how anybody ever, I don't know how people, uh, like when I listen to it, I think, well, I don't know if I like that voice. or I have such a strange sounding voice anyway. I'm lucky to be, I'm lucky to, I have been so fortunate and I'm so grateful for the way that my career is and because now I have complete freedom. I can sing anything that I think is important to sing. And I've just written the song. I've just uh, put out, um, I just did it for the first time at the Red Dog Saloon, which was my first show since 2019. <laughs> and we had a sold-out crowd, and it's a wonderful old place. Janis Joplin played there and the Sons of Champlin, and, and everybody has come through there and played. It's up in Virginia City. It's a little place. But they have great pizza, and the people are wonderful, and it's a great place to, for people to listen to music. And I'm working on a project called um, 
that while I'm working on the song, the song is called The Devil by a Different Name, and the project is called For the Black Sheep. And The Devil by a Different Name talks about, one of the verses says, Call me left wing, call me right. We are split right down the middle in this fight. Divided we fall, that rule don't change. It's just the devil by a different name, boys, the devil by a different name. And what I'm trying to do in that song is to point out that we have got to learn to build bridges. We have to stop building walls and start building bridges. We need to do that. We are becoming so disparate and so separate from one another, and we can't seem to speak to each other anymore. And look what's happening in our in our Congress. I mean, it's just... I mean, it's just like black and white. Well, that's not where most people live. Most yes. people live in the middle. So when you're too far to the left or you're too far to the right, you're losing most of the people who just want to have peace and want to have people working together to make things better and, and to rein in some of the wild edges, to pull some of those back a little bit. You know, give people time to get used to things. If you're doing, you know, really restrictive things or you're doing really permissive things, give people time. People need time to get used to new things, and they, we definitely need to learn to, to speak with one another. I don't think we're doing that now. As a matter of fact, I, I think we're probably as close to a civil war as we've ever been in this country since the first civil war. And I think that's a shame, and it breaks my heart. I never thought that I would live long enough to see such a thing. You also brought up the outlaws. Um, I wanted to touch on that a little bit more. You actually gave me a great idea. I think what we'll do with your show is we're going to just make it an outlaw show. So Lacey J. Dalton's hits mixed with the outlaws of country music. Oh, I'd love it. You know, there are some songs that, that a lot of people haven't heard um, that I've written. One of them is called Adios and Run, and then there's another one called Hard Luck Ace. And some of these songs were, uh, I wanted to do outlaw music when I moved from, when I finally got bought away from CBS Records, which had turned into an awful situation where I just wasn't even recording. I was so mad at them. Um, I had a long period in my career when I couldn't record at all. Mm. It was three or four or five years. I can't remember. I finally went to Jimmy Bowen over at Universal, and I said, uh, or Capitol, I said, Jimmy, will you please buy me out of this contract? Because I'm just dying on the vine. I have a little child, a little boy to raise by myself, and I'm a single mother, and I need to work, and I can't work because um, I can't record for the new people who are running my record company. They are, they don't want to let me go because they don't want to compete with me, but they, they're not going to promote me either because they think I'm too old. Well, that was the whole thing. I, when I was signed to my record deal, I was 33 years. I wish they could see me now. I really, truly do. I just really wish. You, know, you ought to see me now. But when I was 33, they thought I was like this ancient thing wow. that, you know, couldn't possibly, you know, hobble to my shows and stuff. <laughs> and it was just like, it was just stupid. I, it was, you know, people, I guess, I guess maybe before that, maybe that was unusual. But I was very grateful for the fact that I finally did get a record deal because, like I said, I was a single mom. And, um, you know, I needed to be something more than, uh, you know, a waitress to give my child uh, the education I wanted to give him. And uh, and I was able to give him a good education, and I, he is a very successful person, and I'm really... Uh, uh, 
I've just been, I ha- when looking back over my life, I was widowed very young. I was only, oh, I don't know, 27, 28, 29 years old. I can't remember when my first husband, had, my son's father, had a swimming accident and uh, became totally paralyzed. Wow. And he, he died when my son was about three. And um, so I had a lot of shocks early on. I think that's one of the reasons, too, those things happened to me, because I needed to understand what, it, what people were going through on this, in this world. I think we come here, I believe we come here time after time, and I believe it's a school. And I believe we learn how to perfect our spirits in this place. And, you know, I'm sure that's, you know, heretic stuff, but it's what I really believe. And um, that's why songs like The Highwaymen that the, the, uh, the uh, outlaws did, uh-huh. which is a song about reincarnation, that's why I responded to that music so much, because it was talking about a broader way to think about spirituality, a spirituality that I could really embrace. And because of that, and because of because I'd always, I think I came in this this time, just to give people strength, give them courage, you know. But you can't talk about that stuff if you've not ever, if you've never had, if you've never had hard challenges, you've never developed strong spiritual muscles. So, you know, I don't regret any any of the hard things that have happened to me. I wish some of them hadn't had to happen. But the fact that they did, uh, it allowed me to dig very, very deep down into my spirit to find um, to find a place of strength, and that place of strength has sustained me through a lot of um, very low times um, as far as career. I never forget. I heard some old actress, and I don't can't even remember. I don't remember if it was Betty Davis or you know. I can't remember who it was. But one of them said, "In this business, you have to learn to endure. You must learn to endure." And I remember hearing this actress saying that, and I thought, "What does she mean? What does she mean by that?" <laughs> well, now I know. <laughs> <laughs> And you've endured a ton, haven't you? I have. Uh, we all we all do. By the time we get to be my age, we we all have endured enough to realize that you know this is not always a gentle and easy place to be. Well, since we're doing an outlaw show, Lacey, um, do you have any interesting stories, funny stories uh, about any of the outlaws that that you sang with, that you toured with? Does anything come to mind? <laughs> you know, I have a lot of stories about the outlaws. Most of them I can't tell. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have to wait till they're gone. But I will tell you a nice story about touring with Merle Haggard if you have time. I, I would love to hear it. <laughs> well, I was on the road with Merle, and I'd been on the road with him for quite some time. My mother was in eastern Pennsylvania. We were in western Ohio doing a show. And it was, I think it was fall. It wasn't just a real balmy time of year, as I recall. And my mother and my Aunt Janet decided that they were going to drive, and they were probably 60 at the time, maybe not quite that old, but probably in 60. And they were dyed-in-the-wool Merle Haggard fans. They lived and breathed Merle Haggard. And my mother called me up, and she said, my name is Jill, my real name is Jill. She said, Jill, your Aunt Janet and I are going to drive over there, and we're going to see you, and you're going to introduce us to Merle Haggard. 
I said, well, okay, Mom. You know, I'm happy to do that. I'm going to be, it'll be great to see it. So um, that morning, not too much, not too long after that phone call, I got a call from Merle's manager, and he said, Lacey, he said, Merle asked me to ask you if you could do the whole show tonight because he's so sick, he doesn't think he can get out of bed. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, I'm happy to do it, and I can do it, but I said, people are going to be pretty disappointed because I don't sound a bit like Merle. <laughs> and, and, uh, but I'm, I'm, of course I'll do any, of course I'll do that. You know, I'm, I'm honored he would ask. So, meanwhile, this puts me in kind of a position. So, my mother's on the way. Now, we are going to get to meet Merle, aren't we? You are going to sit that neat. Now, I'm, I'm not coming out there just to see you. I want to meet your Aunt Janet and I are going to meet Merle Haggard. And I said, well, Mom, Merle just called. Merle's manager just called, and he's really sick, and I don't even know if he's going to be on the show tonight. They asked me to do the whole show. Well, I don't care. We're going to meet Merle Haggard. Well, my mother wasn't like that. My mother was the most diplomatic, soft-spoken, wonderful person, and this was totally <laughs> this was totally out of character. But when my mother spoke, the mountains trembled. So <laughs> I'm going crazy, and knowing that she's coming and Merle's sick, and I I don't know what to do. So I called his road manager and I said, if for some reason Merle feels a little better and can do the show. Could you arrange for my mother and my Aunt Janet to meet him after the show, just for a moment? I'll promise I'll get him out of there as quickly as possible if he's sick, or before the show, or whenever he can manage to do it. If, if you could ask him to do that, should he manage to do the show? Well, he did manage to do the show. He recovered, and he had a great show that night. And so and the road manager came to me and said, Now Merle can see your mom and your Aunt Janet now. So um, they, he had this sort of dressing room, it was sort of like a construction, those construction buildings that are up on stilts, and, you know, that they put in areas, and it's a huge thing. And I had these stairs that went up to it. And so I got my mother and my Aunt Janet after the show, and I went up to the top of these stairs and knocked on the door. My heart was pounding because I thought, oh, I'm just, this is awful. I'm having to ask this guy to do this when he's sick. And the door came open, and Merle said, Lacey. And he said, he looked down at the bottom of the stairs, and he said, and he walked down to the bottom of the stairs. He said, this must be your mom and your Aunt Janet. He put his arm around both of those women, kissed them both on the cheek, said, you guys, come on up into the dressing room, and I'll make you a drink. Come on, come with me. He took them up into his dressing room and talked to them and had drinks for 45 minutes. That is one of the people that Merle Haggard is <laughs> or was. <laughs> and that's uh, that I have other Merle stories, but <laughs> that was that's the one that's the one I can tell. And that's how all of those outlaws are. And I'll never forget. And I think I'm going to write a song about this because I was um, I had a go several gold records from my tour with Willie Nelson, and I believe it was on the back of one of those. Uh, I was the only woman on his uh, Half Nelson project. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that's the album. I'm not sure which album it is, but on the back of that, one of his albums, which I still call them albums because they were, was a big, there was this picture, and it was in silhouette, and there was a cross on a hill at sunset and all these cowboys in silhouette. And at the And right on the back of the record it said, Outlaws Still Believe. I love it. I was so touched. 
and I'm still touched, and I, I believe I'm going to write a song about it for uh, the project that I'm working on uh, for the Black Sheep. You'll just have to you'll just have to hear it when it comes out. I don't have to I don't have to describe it. I want to do a CD after this one called um, Songs of the New West, and on that CD, I want to do songs like. Uh, like Desperado, like Seven Spanish Angels, like uh, Highwaymen, but stuff that I've written. Yeah. I want to do, I want to do, and I may do some of those. You know, Desperado's Waiting for a Train. Um, I want to do Friend of the Devil by the, um, by the New Riders of the Purple Sage. I want to do Last Lonely Eagle by the New Riders. That's a, that's a CD that I first want to do the Black Sheep thing, and then I want to do Songs of the New West. And I've wanted to do it for a long, long time, but I haven't had the means. I think now I can manage to do it, and um, I have, I'm looking forward to doing that, that CD because it was the music that made me love country music again. You are just bustling with ideas. I've talked to 20-year-old artists that don't have as many ambitions as you do. I'm, I'm really impressed. you got a lot coming up. <laughs> well, um, you know, you, I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I had all these ideas when I was 20. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I knew who I was when I was 20. I'm not sure I knew where I was going when I was 20. And may, but now I do. I know what I want to say, and I know where I'm going, and I know how I want to say it, and I know the things that I think are important to say to people. Like, when you're going through hell, keep going. Like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, those, those kinds of things are the kinds of things people need to hear that, and they need to hear it often, especially with all the, the trouble and tribulation that is happening, in, particularly in the world right now. I feel the world is a very troubled place, and our own country is in a, in a very troubled position, and it breaks my heart, and it doesn't need to be this way. And then the last thing I had, Lacey, is I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit more about 16th Avenue. Um, for me, that was the song that I grew up on and, and knew you by, and I think a lot of our listeners here would like to hear you talk a little bit more about, uh, about 16th Avenue. You know, 16th Avenue was a, uh, is still a wonderful song. I don't think that song will ever die, uh, even though there is no longer a 16th Avenue in Nashville, Tennessee. But back in the day, that was where all the publishing houses and some of the record companies were, and that's where you went. When you went to Nashville, you walked into the publishing houses there with your heart pounding, and you played your songs for people, and they either liked them, and you got a record deal, or you got a writing deal, or you went back home to wherever you came from and, and uh, you know, worked in a shoe store or whatever whatever you had to do to get by. Um the song was actually written by a fellow Pennsylvanian. I wish I'd written it myself, but it was written by Tom Schuyler, who later, you know, he was a carpenter in my friend Even Stevens' studio at the time. And he showed that song to Even Stevens. Even Stevens took that song to my very famous producer, Billy Sherrill. And I'll never forget when Billy showed it to me. Billy, in his nasal voice, said, Lacey. I found this song for somebody. And he played the song for me, and I said, well, it better be for me. And he said, you you got it. And so I recorded 16th Avenue, and, of course, the rest is history. That song uh, went it was, went all over the world. It was, uh, it was probably, I think that once you hang out in Nashville for a while and you do music there, you get a song that is called your signature song. 
And I'm pretty sure that 16th Avenue was my signature song, and it was adopted by the songwriters there because uh, a lot of them understood they had lived that story, and Tom Schuyler, the writer himself, uh, as a carpenter in the studio, and after the success of that song, um, he had another song called Old Yellow Car, which I recorded, but the record company had changed hands by that time. It had changed leadership, and they wouldn't put it out on me. But they put it out, but somebody else put the song out and got a Grammy for it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had, I love Tom Schuyler, but because of the success of these two songs, one right after the other, he himself got a record deal. And he was with uh, Fred Knobloch, uh and Tom down the Overstreet. And they were three, the three really best writers in Nashville at the time. So, and they sang beautiful harmony, and they had quite a good career and had some hits. Later then, after that, he became a vice president and then a president, I think, of RCA Records, and then later on became the president of the International Songwriters Association. So he lived the words of that song. He went to Nashville with nothing, you know, sleeping in his car and working in Evans' studio, and went on to great, very, very great success. And the song, of course, for me was um, just a wonderful point in my career. People didn't necessarily think that song was about was about uh, Nashville. They people called it 14th Street and 10th Street, you know, and they still do. They said, "Can sing that song about the 14th Street." <laughs> they and they thought it was if it was Chicago, they thought it was a place in Chicago. If it was San Francisco, they thought it was a street in San Francisco. They did not, uh, and I think a lot of that was due to a promotion uh, director named Jack Lehmeyer, who actually called every radio station and told them that this was the story of Music Row in in um, Nashville. And I think that that helped the DJs. They when they put it out, they could talk about it a little bit. But the song had a life. I don't. Tom t- told me one time. He said, "Someday, I'll show you the BMI on that song." I said. I'd rather not see it, thank you very much. <laughs> but it uh, it really put him in a wonderful position, and, and there couldn't be a better person to have success than uh, than Tom Schuyler. He, I swear, he reminds me of Benjamin Franklin. He's just a, a an incredible human being. You talked about Knobloch and Overstreet too. That they had a little group called SKO, right? That had some hits. Yeah, Skyler, Knobloch, and Overstreet, yeah. and they had they all they had a bunch of hits, and they were really good songs. I mean, they still to this day, I think they're probably they and even Stevens, who found the song for me and who gave me my last big hit um, in 1992. I had a song called Black Coffee that he and uh, Hillary Cantor wrote. And um, I was at a very low point in my career, and he knew that was a big hit. And he said, I'm going to give this song to you, and it's going to bring, it's going to change country music, and it's going to bring you back. And um, I had a huge hit on that. It went number one in just about every country in the world. Turned out to be your last big hit at radio, actually. You, you have so many, and we don't have time to talk about them all, uh, unfortunately. I did want to ask you about one more because I'm going to do a segment around it. Um, okay. The, the Roy Orbison cover, Dream Baby, from, from 1983. What do you remember about recording that one? Well, you know, I heard that song. I didn't hear it first from Roy Orbison. I heard it first from some friends of mine who had a group. Um, Red Ragged Rose was the name of the group. And they were in Northern California where I lived. 
and they used to play that song. And I thought, what a pleasant song that is. What an easy song to listen to that is. And I loved the way they sang it. And um, and and uh, when it came to find a, a song that I needed to uh, be commercial enough and to record, um, that was one that came to mind, and I recorded it, and it was a, a very big hit. I also wanted to get a quick mention about the uh, the Here's the Hank project because I'm a big Hank fan as well. That was so much fun. You know, I never particularly loved the vocalizations that, you know, blues, oh, Lord. <laughs> I didn't particularly like those vocalizations, but I thought, you know, they are really part of the history of country music, and they need to be carried forward um, because using your voice in interesting ways um, is compelling. I'll never forget Maria Moldar, you know, Midnight at the Oasis, and she was using her voice in a different way that was really compelling. And there's a kid now named Vance Joy who is a, um, not a country artist. He's, uh, I guess, uh, alternative rock. But he throws his voice in, that, in a very, and, and, and Roy Orbison did that. And I think sometimes those things need to be preserved, uh, just a little bit of it. And, and, that's, and, and, of course, the songs of Hank Sr. are such compelling songs. They're so simple. They're deceptively simple. And how a man that young could be that wise about love, it must have been, his, uh, must have been from a former incarnation because he, he certainly had some very, very wise and, and grown-up things to say in his songs. And, and then the compelling loneliness uh, of some of his songs. Um, where it, he was just a, he was just a, a touching, real, authentic um, pioneer. And uh, doing that CD uh, as a tribute to him was, it was very, very interesting to me. At first I couldn't do the vocalizations and I had to really work at it. And um, I had a wonderful producer for that who played just about all the instruments, Stephen Swinford. He's passed now, but he was an amazing musician. And I said, Stephen, neither one of us have a lot of money. Why don't we make a record of Hank Sr.'s songs and put it out as a tribute? And he said, let's do it. And we did it. And that's how that album was born. Lacey, you've been just a pleasure to talk to. Uh, I've learned a lot. We've spent a lot of time together, so I, I want to thank you for your uh, generosity with your time as well. Well, thank you for your generosity, and thank you for your interest, and I so appreciate it, and I hope you'll enjoy now that don't be expecting The Last Wild Place to sound like anything you've ever heard from me before, because it doesn't. <laughs> okay, okay. All right? <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to hearing it. All right, then. Glenn, it's been a pleasure, and I hope we get to speak with each other again.